Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this rainy day in Washington, where I could say that we're all still trying to recover from the election, but hopefully we'll be a little less bleary-eyed and a little sharper than we were earlier in this week's episode. I'm Alex Rorty, political correspondent for McClatchy, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by David Cadiz my fellow political correspondent here on the D.C. political desk. Dave, welcome. Thanks for having me. It feels like winter is coming or is here. Dark winter. Yeah. I've heard tell of a dark winter that's that's coming. And of course, we are pleased to be joined by Michael Wilner, a White House correspondent for McClatchy. Michael, welcome. I hope you've been able to get a little rest and relaxation since the election. A little bit, a little bit. Good to be here. Let's dive right in here. You know, in the week plus now uh, since the election, Joe Biden has been declared the president-elect, but we have yet to see President Trump concede. And in fact, he is now actively contesting the results of the election, arguing that it's fraud, uh, arguing for recounts, arguing that uh, he, when it's all said and done, will still be president, and uh, reportedly declining to engage in any sort of transition with Joe Biden which is what normally happens um, between an outgoing president and an incoming president, whether that's classified briefings or even making space um, or even having a budget, uh, supplying a budget to the incoming president's transition team. And so it is, like a lot of things in this presidency, an unconventional, unprecedented development. And we're going to take a look, I think, and, and scrutinize a little bit um, some of the claims from from President Trump. And I just Michael, before I ask you to, to make an assessment of some of the, the, the legal offerings from, from the Trump campaign, I just want to make clear at the outset here that there is nothing unusual about asking for recounts where they're legally permitted. And there's nothing unusual about insisting that every vote be counted um, for the most part. What is unusual, though, is making these broad, severe, and potentially damaging accusations of fraud of widespread fraud um, that would be enough to overturn the results of the election without any evidence, without any corresponding evidence to back up the claim. But Michael, you you take it from there. What is your assessment of, of the legal argument from, from the Trump campaign? So there have been a flurry of lawsuits, right, uh, that began almost immediately after the, the trajectory of the race became clear. Really, in the early hours of Wednesday morning, we ran a piece at 3.30 a.m. Um, on election night that Wednesday morning, quoting Republican officials saying they'd be flooding these states with thousands of lawyers as indeed they have. You know, the issue is these challenges to your point are, are generally specious. And even if they did have merit, and there are dozens at this point, even if they were based on evidence, they would not change the results. Right. If you look at the, the, the biggest challenges that they're mounting, there are several filings in Pennsylvania, but among the most important cases, uh, the Trump team is, is trying to get ballots that arrived after election day between November 4th and 6th dismissed at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has already heard their arguments on this before. Uh, we're talking about early ballots that arrived after, uh, election day. And, you know, the Secretary of State in Pennsylvania, says that there are 10,000 ballots arrived in that period. And my understanding is the that Biden's margin of victory at this point stands at over 50,000. So even if they were to win that case, which 
it's doubtful that the Supreme Court's even going to hear that case um, because it wouldn't make a difference. It would barely eat away at that margin. In Michigan, you know, where they're citing pretty vague terms like incompetence and, uh, you know, irregularities, you know, the margin is, it's like 150,000, right? A blowout compared to... He's up several percentage right. points. I mean, that is not an especially close race relative to some of these others in Michigan. Or relative to where, you know, to his own margin in 2016, which, of course, was not contested and, you know, never has a recount or a lawsuit changed the outcome of an election that was that decisive. Uh, so, you know, it, and it's called, you know, lawyers who were involved in election law refer to it as the margin of litigation. We are well outside of the margin of litigation in several of these states, certainly in uh, in Michigan. Uh, and anyway, courts are reluctant to you know, essentially disenfranchise voters retroactively, even if they do come to the conclusion that, you know, election officials perform their jobs poorly or, you know, in fact, even broke their own state laws. So I, I just, I find these arguments to be highly unlikely to succeed. And then, of course, we can discuss the politics of the Republican Party giving, you know, giving credence to these arguments. But on the actual legal grounds, it's just highly unlikely to see this change the outcome in one state, much less the several he needs to win. Well, there's been an interesting dichotomy, I think, emerge in statements that we've that we've received, um, both on the record from top Republicans and then maybe more private statements made to some reporters, because on the record, and you have, say, the, the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, talking about transitioning to a second Trump term, right? Now, he smiled afterward. People took that as maybe he was joking. It really wasn't as clear to me. But it is consistent with what we've heard from a lot of Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, who has said that Trump has every right to contest the results of this election. I don't think Mitch McConnell made any allegations of fraud, but he's also not throwing up any roadblocks. Mm-hmm. Um, to the president's transition. Um, and, and, and at the same time, it seems like we've had just a handful of blind or anonymous quotes in the media from tr- senior Trump officials also saying that, well, we're just basically humoring the president at this point. I'm not sure that the Republican base sees it that way right now. According to the polls, they don't. Uh, it certainly seems as if they have little faith in the mail-in ballot system and that is, of course, due to the president's comments. What's really surprising isn't Trump's response. He's been previewing this for months, if not years. He said he would do this if he lost in 2016, right? But the reaction of those Republican lawmakers, as you say, and, you know, party heads who are, you know, full bore giving credence to this argument, it does appear to be a coordinated public strategy to sort of build this substantial off-ramp or a permission structure that will, you know, help Trump leave with some pride intact. Needless to say, no losing presidential candidate has ever needed that kind of handholding before. But here we are. The question becomes how long that off-ramp is and, and where it lets off, right? Does it lead to challenges to certified results? Does it lead to the party you know, supporting the president's efforts to change the votes of electors? You know, because their argument has been that, you know, he's entitled to make these legal challenges and so forth. But there does reach a point where those challenges are exhausted and then he's left with a handful of, you know, constitutional tools, if you will, that have not been 
or have rarely ever been used and could put us into crisis territory. I don't think that that is going to happen. I think few people believe that's going to happen because there's so little appetite for it among, you know, Republicans and his own team. Uh, you know, but, but that is a risk they run as they build this permission structure. And lastly, you know, you mentioned Mike Pompeo's statement yesterday. You know, Dave and I had a piece, gosh, I think it's like the day after the election or two days after looking at, you know, these Republican um, Trump loyalists. I don't want to say sycophants, although some of them are. Um, but, you know, Trump loyalists who, the, you know, Trump was their ticket to ride. He was their their ticket to power. Uh, he had, you know, they they rode his, you know, his rise. And now he may be their competition if if he's going to run in 2024. So that's what I hear when I hear Mike Pompeo make these statements. He does not want to get on the wrong side of, you know, an embittered president uh, who is already prone to hold grudges. Dave, I was I was going to say I want to pull you into this conversation because I know you, like me, have been really pouring over the numbers and the results that we have um, in a lot of the states and in particular a lot of the battleground states. And one of the, the claims that the Trump administration is making or Republican officials are making online is you see that there are just these irregular results in a place like Milwaukee or in some cities. And that doesn't seem to be adding up, at least when when I look at the data. I mean, if anything, Trump, I mean, Trump did actually, he did better in some of these cities than he did in 2016. That doesn't seem to indicate that there was some kind of mass amount of fraud in the, in the cities. So one of the allegations I heard just listening to a myriad of them on cable TV and online yesterday was that we had all these voters in cities voting for president and then not voting for any anyone else. How could that happen? Well, it happens all the time. I mean, look at midterm elections. Look at how turnout drops. Some people are just interested in voting for president every four years. I mean, that is that is just over time uh, that, that's provable. Then you have some of, the, some of these allegations are just falling apart, right? You had a you had a postal worker in Erie, Pennsylvania, alleging fraud. Then when he was sworn under oath, he recanted his entire story. You've got incidents in, in Georgia where there's still going to be more elections to be played. There's going to be a recount in Georgia and there's Senate uh, runoffs in Georgia. But you got Republican Party officials saying, no, we don't have the, the, the administrator of the election, the secretary of state, the lieutenant governor, both Republicans we're saying we have looked into this. We are as upset as you are that that it looks like Donald Trump's going to lose this state, but we don't have enough evidence to show that there's fraud. Now, the Trump campaign's putting out press releases of people that are supposedly dead voters that are voting. A lot of these cases were there was a clerical error on the actual birth date of these people. And as Michael already pointed out, you would need tens of thousands, even if there were some instances of of real fraud, which has not been proven. You would need tens of thousands of these instances in in multiple states, right? He can't just have a court victory in Pennsylvania. He would need one in Arizona and Nevada and Georgia. He needs three or four states to flip this result. And can I just point out, he would need them relatively quickly yeah. because you've got these states are going to verify their vote totals within the next 10 to 20 days most uh, within the next, you know, 10 to 12 days. And that means that he needs to, you know, come up with evidence to back up these 
very specious claims. Um, and here the RNC is saying that they need more time. They need more time, you know, to, to come up with that evidence. I mean, bottom line is I just I think if you talk to most Republicans, you put them under a lie detector test like they know Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States come January. But this is to irresponsibly allow a seed of doubt that this was a legitimate election. And unfortunately, I mean, their, their supporters believe it, even if they don't, even if they're the wink and the nod, the, the 70 million people that voted for Trump, a, a very large portion of them are going to be able to say in the months ahead, well, Joe Biden's not a legitimate president because this thing was stolen in Milwaukee and Philadelphia and Atlanta. And the sad part is objectively, this election was pretty well run, given what we were looking at. The mail-in ballot system worked. The problem was the mail-in ballots were counted later due to Republican legislative efforts to, to make that so. But we didn't have mass technical problems on, at the voting booth. We didn't have people that looked like they were disenfranchised, that they, they, they weren't allowed to vote or they couldn't. We didn't have a coronavirus outbreak at the polls. I mean, Remember all the scenarios that we were going through, that we were imagining in the months up leading up to this election that could have gone wrong. It largely went pretty smoothly, but now because the president on down to Republican leadership, they're casting the doubt around this election to allow their supporters to say that that something something wrong happened, something nefarious happened. Yeah, I, Dave, to your point, I haven't heard any discussion of the quote unquote naked ballots for instance, yeah. right? I mean, there was a, right. a panic on the left a month or two ago about, you know, just having tens of thousands of their voters essentially disenfranchised because they didn't mail in their ballots correctly, didn't put right. it in the, the secrecy ballot. Haven't heard any discussion about that. No. To your point, you know, the, the ability um, both from election administrators and I think the Democratic Party gets some credit too, that they were able to get their voters to, to not just vote by mail, but do so correctly to do so in a way that their votes would be counted. And there are some exceptions, but, you know, a lot of the states counted also pretty quickly. In, right. In the, I mean, Nevada will have to put the asterisk next to, and I mean... Nevada, some Nevada of these, and Arizona, maybe. Arizona's got... But I mean, like, and, and honestly, even the losing side had amazing turnout. I mean, this should be an election that's celebrated. It's historic turnout. Yeah, right. You know, even Trump's, even if you're a Republican, you got more people out to vote, right, on mm -hmm. your side. And it saved them the Senate, likely. But now I just, I mean, it, it's just, you know, I just think it's it's terrible that, you know, as you guys described it, the permission structure that is being created here to allow Republicans to say three months from now, six months from now, when Biden tries to do something, well, he's not our legitimate president anyway. I think that is what we're going to hear. And Trump, I don't think, will ever concede this election no. to be, I mean, I just, uh, he will leave no. office in some way. Him admitting defeat, I would be surprised. He's going to do interviews and claim that this was stolen from him till the end of time, leaving that door open for 2024. Let's take that point and, and spin it forward just a little bit, because obviously these allegations, as we've discussed, have a lot of negative implications and, you know, even just for the perception of Joe Biden's legitimacy. And we're also talking about, I mean, look, this is not a House seat that's being swapped. Here, right? This is the presidency of the United States. You have a what is supposed to be an actual in the law transition period because you were talking about taking over the world's most sprawling large bureaucracy, right? I mean, it takes it is a very, very difficult thing to do. It's why we have this transition period. It's why that the incoming administration is allowed to ensconce itself in Washington and begin 
the, the hard work and the lengthy work necessary to, to take over the federal government. But at the same time, Dave, let's examine briefly the politics on the right here, because if the, the Republican base doesn't think that Joe Biden's a legitimate president, are, does that really set the stage for a lot of bipartisan deal making <laughs> like we expect to have happen? Or if anything is going to happen in a in a Washington where Democrats control the House and the presidency, but Republicans, if they manage to hold on in Georgia, um, still hold the Senate. That's the only way anything gets done. I mean, do we do we expect? But if you know someone like Marco Rubio, he goes back on the Florida. Republicans are screaming at him that he can't work with a, a Democratic president who who stole the election. I don't know. That doesn't seem like we're we're in the you know we're going to have a lot of deal making over the next couple of years. You know, as most of our politics have been determined by in the last 10 years, watch Mitch McConnell, right? Like, he's likely still to be majority leader and unless Democrats can sweep two Senate seats in 50 some days in these, in these runoffs in Georgia. But I think his comments are, are fascinating because as you mentioned, he is not alleging fraud, but he's allowing the president to have his temper tantrum here for a few more weeks. I think he realizes he knows he's going in to work with with a, a President Biden. But I have been told that he can't step on Trump's toes just yet because they've got these runoff elections. And he needs the Republican base juiced and angry to turn out January 5th for Kelly Loeffler and, and David Perdue, in which look to be marquee competitive center races, really competitive center races in Georgia, state that's not used to them, frankly. Will he eventually come to terms with, with Biden? I mean, you know, there's always another election, right? Those That's what incentivizes yep. politicians. And yep. 2022 is going to be another battleground control for the Senate and the House, it looks like. So there's going to be incentives early on in those first 100 days, 200 days of a Biden administration to get something done, whether it be you know, stimulus, economic relief for people still struggling coronavirus, whether it be, you know, infrastructure. I don't know. I haven't dug, you know, I think it's too soon to say what, but I also think it's too soon to say, well, nothing can can be accomplished sure. because you're going to have senators like Ron Johnson who, you know, are going to be in a nail-biter race and, you know, they're going to need to go home and say, you know, with something. I mean, that's just always how it is in every election. They, they, they eventually pass things because they need to go home to tell voters, what did you do? What did you, what have you been doing up there? So I think there will be some incentives, but it's going to be a rough transition here. I mean, I think given mostly because of due to Trump. And I would say, I mean, if you were looking for a sort of broader movement to change the Republican party because they lost in the 2020 election, well, those chances were already fleeting because it wasn't quite the victory Democrats were hoping for. But if you think that the election was stolen, if you yeah. think the results are fraudulent, then the odds of the average Republican saying, well, maybe we ought to do something different here moving forward, yeah. you know, moves from slim to none. It's a curious strategy to motivate Georgia voters, Georgia Republican voters to come out if, you know, you're claiming that the election just a few weeks ago was stolen anyway. Yeah. It's a bizarre way to, you know, effort to motivate. It's that they don't want to cross Trump in any way. I mean, right. Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue going at their own secretary of state saying he should resign because Trump's mad, yeah. right? They're mm -hmm. still loyal to him, even if he is on his way out. And I think right. that says more than anything about his hold on the Republican Party, his continual 
hold on the Republican Party into 2021 and beyond. Absolutely. Well, looking ahead to future elections, um, let's let's discuss here what appears to be one of the clearest messages um, from the 2020 uh, races uh, results. Democrats suffering losses across the board with voters of color. That includes members of the black community, Latino community, and the Asian American community. That includes Cuban voters, Venezuelan voters, everything from Vietnamese voters in California to Korean voters in Southern California. Across the board, it seems that Democrats suffered these losses. And Dave, there are a lot of long-term implications for both parties uh, for this. We have heard from Republicans forever that winning over the working class parts of, of you know, the Latino or African-American community is the, their future. That is their electoral future in this country. But in the short term, what do we know? What do we think we can say? Or frankly, even speculate, because we, again, we're just a week out from this thing about why these voters of color um, move toward the Republican Party and what it means going forward. So, I mean, as as you put the asterisks on it, this is there's a lot of preliminary data. I mean, Democrats are already arguing to me that like, hey, we had great Hispanic turnout in Arizona and Nevada that saved those states and, and helped deliver the presidency to Joe Biden. But as you said, you know, the Miami-Dade County issue is, is going to be one of the big storylines, I think, going forward, whether Democrats even decide, you know, if Florida is a competitive state for them anymore. Um, Texas, the Rio Grande Valley, obviously problems. But even in a lot of these cities, you know, I was diving into some precincts in Milwaukee where they said, you know, Trump had marginal inc- increases in some Hispanic districts in places where we don't normally think, oh, there's Hispanic voters. Well, really, Hispanic voters are everywhere now. So it's, I mean, we, you know, I think we have to take that into consideration. But just one point, I would say, I was looking at some of the ads, Hawkfish, the, the Bloomberg data analytics firm put out a bunch of the ads that Trump was running in Miami-Dade County to Hispanic, Venezuelan, Cuban voters, very targeted, very smartly, where Trump was spending a lot of his money. And I think it's I think it was under the radar, frankly, because these are all Spanish ads and like I can't understand them Mm -hmm. because I don't speak Spanish. And a lot of the National Press Corps don't speak Spanish, but they're brutal and they have images of Kamala and Biden, you know, in pits of flames with socialism popping up. There are ads that pit Black Lives Matter against Hispanics, sort of inflaming ethnic tribalism, and they spent a lot of money on them. So – you know, I think we can't dismiss that. I also think that, like, we, we've sort of mined this before, but, you know, immigration isn't always the top concern and, and hasn't proven to be for Hispanic voters. And I think that can be in cliche about the wall and Trump's rhetoric and putting kids in cages. You know, some Hispanics have anti-immigrant attitudes, came in, and now we're going to close the door behind us. So I think we've got to dive into that more, and especially with males, right? There's a little bit of a machismo factor to Trump and strength and sort of the businessman pull yourself by your, your own bootstraps. And I think Trump and Republicans at large represented that better than the Democratic Party. I just think that, you know, it's it's a community that it's that, that I just think a lot of us in D.C. who write all these national stories don't understand as well and haven't spent enough time as well. And now we don't even have good polling to understand them. Like it's a, literally about talking to them. And there's language barriers and cultural differences. But I think we have to un- get to understand. I mean, the Trump that Trump seemed to get it right. Like hat tip to the Trump campaign 
for, for at least making gains in those communities. And, you know, the messaging was, was brutal. I think it was an economic message, but also the fear of socialism, especially in Florida and Democrats coming in too late. I mean, I mean, priorities USA, the big Democratic super PAC, there was a question on the, on, they had a post-election briefing and it was like, well, Democrats spent all this money in Florida. Why? I mean, they outspent Trump in Florida. It was too late. Yeah. The money came in too late. And I think that's another lesson of this election. Just pouring in money at the end yeah. when people already have preconceived messages in their head, it, it doesn't work. Yeah. So it's about investing now and having a continual investment for two, four years. When all the results do come in, one thing I'm confident that will have happened is it seems as if our election is being determined or, or both the coalitions for both parties are being driven by gender. And this is the election that that force became so potent that it actually crashed through even racial boundaries. Um, and that that's yeah. going to be at the heart of this, that it is Latino men, that it is black men who decided that they liked Donald Trump or at least were willing to tolerate him more than the Democrats. And, and I would just say as political reporters, Dave, to piggyback on your point, I mean, I think this election for me really signals that you almost have to stop looking at these as these big groups of voters and, and get down and, and really look at them the way, frankly, that we do with a lot of white voters, you know, which are a large majority yeah. of, of Americans. But we talk about them as college educated men or or you know, the quote unquote waitress right. moms. And I just think that this this era really that to me, this election really suggests that that's where we have to to go, because if you want to understand the Latino vote, well, you really need to, to separate not just the Cuban community, but the Venezuelan American community or the Colombian American right. community. And and. And Latino men. Um, and I think. And their ages and, you know, all those. It's all like the cross right. tabs, but we need more cross tabs just for Hispanics. Right. Right. And, and, you know, I've had some Democrats already point out to me in the aftermath of all this. Look, I mean, I think Democratic support was down in a place like Harris County, you know, where it doesn't look like Joe Biden is going to do all that much better than Hillary Clinton, which is a huge surprise. And I think a huge yeah. piece of the, the underperformance relative to expectations for Biden there. But at the same time, you know, you look at the Rio Grande Valley where he really suffered. And what is that? I mean, that, that, that's the same thing that you would see with white voters. Rural Americans are not on board with the Democratic Party right now, right. you know, and, and, and that's what I talk about. You have to get a little bit deeper and you have to do that. And I think, you know, I think some of our coverage did that. I think a lot of the media's coverage started to reflect that. But I think there's a long way to go if you really want to understand what's happening here. I mean, Michael, I will say, I mean, Dave mentioned this, but it seemed as if this is one thing that the Trump campaign did see coming, that they were going to perform better with these communities. They did. Uh, actually, the, it was either the morning of the election or as results were coming in, we, we had a call with Jason Miller, uh, who is a communication strategist for the campaign. And to Dave's point, you know, he was talking about how hyper targeted uh, their radio and television advertising was, you know, to Puerto Ricans in the I-4 corridor, to, you know, to the Cuban community in Florida. They had a jingle, you know, in uh, their Spanish language advertising that they, they thought actually really caught on because uh, it was catchy. Um, and they, they did the same thing, you know, with uh, urban radio. And they clearly thought that they had a sophisticated, targeted effort, and they took it seriously throughout the whole campaign, which a lot of people didn't think that they had a serious chance of making inroads in these margins. And I, I think they were proven right, you know, at least on, on this front. It wasn't enough, but those efforts did pay off dividends. 
It seems crazy to me, David, when you when you spin this forward that Democrats would abandon Florida. I mean, if nothing else, it doesn't seem as if any candidate, and I go back to the 2018 midterms when Bill Nelson and Andrew Gillum both lost in Florida unexpectedly in what was otherwise a banner year for the Democratic Party, that is someone going to take it upon themselves to make a four-year effort there to really invest? And, it, you know, the difference is you say, okay, well, there are always states that the Democrats will ignore because they won't win. A lot of times it's because you know, there are white evangelical voters who you're just never going to win. And I would agree with that. That, you know, any, that millions of dollars spent winning over those kind of voters in a place, say, like Alabama is probably wasted money. But are Democrats really at a point where they're going to write off the, the Cuban community and the Venezuelan community? Is there not more room there for, for persuasion? You know, and, and, you know, they've been talking about it for years. I know the Democratic state party there has been a mess for a very long time. Is no one in the party really going to make a big investment there? Because Florida's electoral votes, no kidding, are going to be pretty important, you know, uh, moving forward here. Well, already call up your sources at Bloomberg, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who can write that $100 million check without thinking about it? Um, there's not that many people, but, you know, the Democrats do have some of those folks. I'm already looking at like the 2022 Senate race and, you know, Marco Rubio is up. He won by seven points, I think almost eight points last time. Does he even have a competitive race? You know, if Joe Biden would have won Florida, even by like a point, I think you'd have someone like Val Demings potentially look at challenging Rubio. Or I just think you're going to have a lot of people that would have been the top tier crop of candidates in Florida. Take a look at that and say, no, thanks. It's not ready. Not in a midterm, not in Biden's first midterm. So I think that's the first sort of litmus test. And then you're right. Can they completely wipe Florida off the map? No, but I think they've learned that it's like either, and I I got this mantra listening to David Pluff's podcast the whole time. It's like, the reason we won Florida is because it was early investment and we registered new people and you have to spend $100 million and you have to spend it early. You can't come in the last three months and build relationships. It's too big. It's an unwieldy state. And like the investment has to start like now, right, for the next election. And that was his mantra and it seems prescient now. So, you know, who's going to do that? I think the Florida Democratic Party has to get themselves in order. The National Party has to figure out what state it's going to go in. There's going to be some temptation, I think, to look at Texas next, even though it didn't perform well. In four years from now, it's a long time, right? Georgia was five points behind, and now it's even. Can they make up six points in Texas, and is that where the investment goes? I think you'll see different parties vying and making different cases, as we always do. You know, come to Ohio, come to uh, Iowa. I think Texas would be the state that could have a case against Florida. And it's hard to do both because they're just both gargantuan. But I think the first test for, for our listeners is watch this Rubio race. Yep. See if there's real Democrats stepping up. See if there's investment now for 2022. That will be some tea leaves to, to be read. Okay, gentlemen, that was a, a great show. Dave, Michael, thank you both so much for coming on. I want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and our executive producer, David Cobert. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. Talk to you next week.